Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. God bless you all. Let's pray, pray, shall we, friends? Loving Heavenly Father, thank you for already speaking to us this evening. Thank you for what we've heard. Thank you for touching our hearts already. And now we pray you'll speak to us and open our hearts to receive from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it's a great joy and privilege for me to be here with you this evening. Thank you, Tom, and your committee for inviting me to be here. It's a great privilege. I've known of this convention for many years, and now I'm here. And it's a great joy, too, for me, because my Christian journey started in May 1962 in RAF Bishop's Court near Arglas, uh, near Downpatrick in County Down. I was just about 18 then, I was a young airman, and for the first time ever I met a real true Christian whose life spoke to me. His name, he was a Welshman, his name was Russell Williams, and just in the, the space of a few weeks he had shared the gospel with me, and it started like this. I was interested in football and dancing and going on the Liberty Runs to Belfast, from Bishop's Court, but I, this man was different to everybody else. And so I asked him one day why he was different. He said, Stuart, I'm a Christian. And I said, well, I've been christened, confirmed. Uh, he said, well, what does the word of God say? As so he turned me to Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and then Romans 6.23, and he began to share with me, and I began to get convicted, he and his wife and another couple were praying for me and in that short time I was convicted. He came into my office about the 6th of May 1962 and I said, Russ, I want to be a Christian. We locked the door, I got out on my hands and knees and I committed my life to the Lord Jesus Christ on that camp on that day in May 1962. The first church I ever went to was Newcastle Baptist Church where Willie Irvin was the pastor and the very first time I ever gave my testimony was in a tent that the Baptist um, missions evangelist Curry Brennan was preaching and I understand his widow lives in Bangor I'd love to meet her so if you can fix that for me please do what a great joy it is to be and I have to, to pay tribute to my colleagues who work in Release International in Open Doors in Voice of the Martyrs, we work together and we share and do things together. They do a fantastic work and I'm just not representing CSW this evening. In one way I'm representing their work too. Now I've done about 60 missions with Baroness Cox over the 21 years I've been in CSW and I've been with her to Nagorno-Karabakh and the Caucasus. We've redeemed slaves in southern Sudan. We took foster care to Moscow. We went to places uh, that you really wouldn't want to go to. And so when we've gone around the churches, and I've been doing this for 21 years, people have said to us, well, how do you cope with all the heartache you see and feel and hear and touch? And we said, well, it's really simple. Firstly, we have a team of people that pray for us. 
because we believe that prayer changes things. And James 5.16 says, The fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous person availeth much. Amen? Amen. Are you there? Amen. <laughs> Secondly, we have a sense of humour. Now, our Baroness Cox and I, we have wicked sense of humour. And I collect epitaphs of gravestones. And my favourite one is found on a, a gravestone in Bolton Abbey in Yorkshire. It goes like this, Alistair. Remember, friend, as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, soon you will be. Prepare for death to follow me. <laughs> no, that's not finished, because Mark Twain added this line. To follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. <laughs> and it's the most important thing, the most important question you'll ever have to face. Where will you spend eternity? Where will you spend eternity? And Mark Twain wasn't willing to follow that man until he knew where he was going. And the Bible says this, the Apostle John said this, this is the record that God has given to us eternal life this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and the wrath of God abideth not on him. And only you can answer that question. Does the Son of God live with you and dwell with you and in your hearts? Don't leave this church without knowing the Saviour's blessing. And so I'm also thrilled uh, today to be here because the subject tonight is advocacy. And so I'm going to try and see if I can... Where shall I point it? Which way shall I point it? Oh, great. Well, Christian Solidarity is a mission organisation working for religious freedom through advocacy and the pursuit of justice. That's our calling. We don't do aid. We don't do church support. We don't do Bibles, release, open doors and Barnabas. They do that wonderfully well, and we work with them. But our calling is to be advocates and so the key verse for us in the scripture is Proverbs chapter 31, verses 8 and 9, where God called his people, his covenant people, to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. And it's our great joy and privilege in CSW to be a voice for voiceless Christians and others. And we've been doing that all the 30 or 40 years we've been in existence. We work in 26 countries of the worst kind that you can imagine being a voice for the voiceless. And so I want to um, introduce you to my favourite typical CSW supporter. If you could open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 38 and 39, we need the word of God. Hallelujah, don't we friends? God's word lives and abides forever. And so I want to introduce you to a person that would have belonged to us had we been in Old Testament times. And so I'm going to read this very briefly and quickly. Jeremiah chapter 38 is the story of Ebed-Melech, the Cushite. He was a eunuch. His name means, listen to this, servant of the king. And so this is the story. So they took, verse, from verse 6 in chapter 38, so they took Jeremiah and put him in the cistern of Malchajah, the king's son, which was in the courtyard of the guard. They lowered Jeremiah by ropes into the cistern. It had no water in it, only mud, and Jeremiah sank down into the mud. But Ebed-Melech, 
a Cushite, an official in the royal palace, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern, and whilst the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate in judgment, Ebed-Melech went out of the palace and did some advocacy. And he said to the king, My lord the king, these men have acted wickedly in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet. They have thrown him into a cistern while he was starved to death because there's no longer any bread in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Cushite, Take thirty men with, from here with you, lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern, before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him, went to a room under the treasury in the palace. He took some old rags and worn out clothes from there and let them down with ropes to Jeremiah in the cistern. Ebed-Melech the Cushite said to Jeremiah, put these old rags and worn out clothes under your arms to pad the ropes. Jeremiah did so. And they pulled him up with the ropes and lifted him out of the cistern. And Jeremiah remained there in the courtyard of the garden. Over to chapter 39, verse 15. And so whilst Jeremiah had been confined in the courtyard of the guard, the word of the Lord came to him. Go and tell Ebed-Melech the Cushite, this is what the Lord uh, God, the Almighty, the God of Israel says. I'm about to fulfill my word, words against this city through disaster, not prosperity, and at that time, they will be fulfilled before your eyes. But I will rescue you on that day, declares the Lord. You will not be handed over to those you fear. I will save you, but you, uh, you will not fall by the sword, but will escape with your life because you trust in me, declares the Lord. May God add that blessing to his word. So four things about the prophet Jeremiah. Firstly, he was, can you see that? Uh, he was a covenant child of God by faith. He was not an Israelite. He was a eunuch. But 39 verse 18 says that God said, you have put your trust in me, declares the Lord. He was a covenant child of God like you and I by faith. He had put his trust in God. And therefore, secondly, and this is really important, he was informed. Now, he didn't have the BBC. He didn't have Sky TV or CNN or the BBC World Service. He had no AOL.com, no Google.com, but he knew the man of God was in prison. And friends, today we have no excuse. When something happens to the children of God, we should know. And we know from what's happening on the media, that in Syria and Iraq, the people of God and others are being persecuted and discriminated. I have a friend who was from the border, was working in the border of China and visited North Korea. He came back absolutely shocked and said to me, why aren't the people on the streets for the people of North Korea? He said, why aren't we doing something for them? Why are we silent? You see, he got informed. So not only was Ebed-Melech a covenant child of God by faith, like you and I, not only was he informed, but thirdly, he acted on the information he had. He did something. He became an advocate. He went to the king who was sitting in the judgment den and said, Oh, king, 
the prophet's in prison and he's going to die in prison. We can't leave him there. Friends, I'm here tonight with Eric and with our friends from Melise at Open Doors and Barnabas to tell you there are thousands and thousands of Christians suffering in prisons, in cells, being tortured, being beaten, abused, being killed, simply because they're Christians. Who cares? You know, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, when one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. Or do we? And so this evening and this week, you're going to hear our heart. I'm going to, by this evening, share you my heart. And I hope and pray you will never be the same again. And so the fourth thing, four things about Ebed-Melech and, oh, what happened there? Okay, let's see. Um, well, the fourth thing is this, that he couldn't do this work on his own. The king said, take 30 men with you. We can't do this work on our own. We need you. And CSW release open doors and Eric and his ministry and others who are doing this work need you to do two things or three things. Firstly, to pray, because prayer changes things. When the Apostle Paul said and talked about the enemies, he said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers in the heavenly places. And the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but they are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. Prayer changes things. Amen? You know, I want to share something with you about Archbishop William Temple, that great Anglican Archbishop, Bishop Raj. He said this, when I pray, coincidences happen. When I don't pray, they don't. Pray for coincidences. I expect coincidences because I pray for them. Pray for them. So prayer changes things. And then campaigning, advocacy. You become an advocate as well. And we'll share, you, share with you how you can do that. And so I want to take you on a journey. And I want to take you to some countries that we're working on in advocacy. We work, CSW works at the UK Parliaments, the Congress and Senate in America, the United Nations Human Rights Commission, and in, we have partners in Norway and Denmark and India and Hong Kong, Australia, New Zealand. We work together to be a voice for the voiceless and doing our advocacy. And so in 26 countries of the world, I can't uh, talk about them all tonight, but so I want to take you to a few. I think, Jonathan, could you move my pictures for me, please? If you could. I want to go to the next screen, please. Thank you. Come with me to the United Nations Human Rights Commission uh, Council. It's December 2009, and CSW has been asked to do a briefing on Eritrea. And we're there to be a voice for Eritrean Christians. Eritrea is, has a government that's one of the worst in Africa. It is locked up some 20,000 political and journalistic opponents to the regime and since May 2002 has been locking up Christians. Firstly, that persecution started with the Orthodox Church, 
Then it spread to the, Catholic, uh, to the Protestant church and the Catholic and the Orthodox. And everywhere they found Christians, pastors and elders, they locked them up. Even as we sit here tonight at this convention, there are some 2,500 to 3,000 Eritrean Christians currently in prison. Who cares? Who would be their voice? And so we were there to do a presentation to the United Nations Human Rights Council. And the man on the left is a Christian journalist who spent time in prison because he was a Christian. And then there was an activist who belonged to the Orthodox Church and our Director of Advocacy. And we presented the findings as they are to the United Nations and they promised sanctions. Come back with me again to... Okay, Jonathan, the next picture. We're there in 2012 and we drafted a resolution in our office in Surrey. And on the left... Your left is Matthew Jones, our parliamentary and UN consultant, and no one less than the, the Somali ambassador to the UN, who absolutely loved what we were doing about Eritrea and galvanised all the African uh, nations at the UN to vote and endorse our resolution that called for the UN to appoint a rapporteur for human rights for Eritrea. We'd worked eight years and prayed eight years for that, friends, and if you were part of us then thank you because they appointed the rapporteur but that's not the end of our work in Eritrea we have fought with other agencies at the UN to get the UN to set up a commission of inquiry into the government of Eritrea crimes against humanity and four weeks ago at the UN we managed the next picture Jonathan if we could please Next, we, four weeks ago, we were able to pass, the resolution was passed, setting up a United Nations Commission of Inquiry into the government of Eritrea. Friends, that is an answer to prayer. And you see Matthew Jones, our uh, UN consultant, in the middle of that subcommittee, chairing that committee and giving the facts about the treatment of Christians. Young Christians who've been... Uh, have drafted into the Eritrean army when they've gone with their Bibles they've been detained, imprisoned in container huts without adequate ablution and water facilities and they've been abused and tortured who cares about them friends we should 1 Corinthians 12 26 and Hebrews 13 says this remember those in prison as if you are their fellow prisoners I'm going to return to Eritrea later before I finish and so I go to my next picture um, if we could please let's go to northern Nigeria and it's been talked about tonight already northern Nigeria over the last two years thousands of northern Nigerian Christians have been murdered by this organisation Boko Haram they never ever believed that there would be suicide bombers in northern Nigeria. But they're there, friends. And when northern Nigerian Christians go to church in Maduguri and in some of the states in the north and in Kano, Kaduna, Jos and Baoshi, they have to pray before they go because they don't know whether they will come back home or not. Just in the last few days, Boko Haram, 
have cut off and surrounded and taken over a village where Christians live. And they've been killing the Christians in the village and the police and the military are totally unable to do anything about it. Let me take you back to the start of the public um, out, out appearing of Boko Haram. In July 2009, 200, um, 250 Christians were rounded up in Madugri by Boko Haram, who marched into Madugri with guns and weapons, rounded up Christians, pastors, elders, wives, Christian wives, and held them at gunpoint. To the women, the Christian sisters, they said this, if you won't recant on your Christianity, we're going to use you as a shield between us, the military, and the police. To the pastors, Alistair, they said this, if you won't recant on your Christianity, we're going to behead you. Friends, this is the reality of what happened that day in Madugri in 2009. Yusuf Muhammad was the leader of this insurrection then and a founder of Boko Haram. This is Pastor George Orgy from the Good News Church in Madugri. He'd been out of Madugri in the morning and the afternoon he'd come back home. He couldn't find his wife who was pregnant and somebody said she's in the compound. He went into the compound voluntary. There he found 200 of the Madugri Christians surrounded by men with weapons and guns and the threats going on. Some were praying, some were singing, some were weeping. He was summoned into the presence of Yusuf Muhammad, the leader of that insurrection. He told that man that God loved him. He told him that Christ had died for him. He told him that if he were to repent of his sins and turn around from his wicked way of living and accept the Lord Jesus to die for him, there would be a place for heaven for him. And with that, they took the man of God away and beheaded him. His colleague, Pastor Yakubu from Duguri, another church, they cut out his heart. I can't show you the picture. This is the price Christians are paying in northern Nigeria. But this is what this man of God said to his friend before he went to see Yusuf Muhammad. We'll go on. Jonathan. Or is it, yes, thank you. This is what he said. If you survive, tell my brothers that I died well and I'm living with Christ. And if we all die, we know that we die for the Lord. Here was a man of God who lived in the presence of the Lord. When I was a young Christian in those uh, late years in May, from May 1962 onwards, we used to sing this song, I walk with the King, hallelujah. I walk with the king, praise his name. No longer I roam. My soul faces home. I walk and I talk with the king. That's what God wants for every one of us, each one of us, to walk and to talk with him and to know him. Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. Do you know the Lord Jesus like this? George Orgie knew the Lord Jesus and he's in the glory. Will you go there? And then come with me to another place. Thank you, Jonathan. Pakistan. How many of you pray for the country of Pakistan? Thank you. Some of you do. I was there in May. I made my fifth visit. And I took this picture 
in February 1997, when the village of Shantinagar, which means in the Urdu language, land of peace. That Saturday morning in February 1997, 786 Christian homes were burnt down, 25,000 Christians of all denominations were made homeless. Not one was killed. But they left two questions on the homes for us in the West. On the left, have we, that's have Christians, protection in Pakistan? Their answer, no. And then the second question on the middle pillar, is it a crime to be a Christian in Pakistan? Their answer, yes. Of course, it isn't legally, but Christians are part of the minority and they're discriminated and persecuted. Let me tell you, friends, I was there in May. It was the worst I'd ever seen. We had to have an armed guard everywhere we went. We were in um, Lahore, Islamabad, and Faisalabad. And you know, the media has said nothing this week. But if you Google Pakistan and get the current news, it's this. There have been protests of a million people this week on the streets of Pakistan. Do, uh, Dr. Qadri, who's a Sufi, he's a Pakistani-Canadian, has gone back to Pakistan recently and teamed up with Imran Khan to stand against the government. They have millions of people on the streets protesting against the government. And we need to pray for the country. There are billions and billions of Saudi dollars going in to Pakistan. They are building madrasas all over the place. And they want the education of Pakistanis, Muslim Pakistanis, to be after Wahhabism, the Saudi version of Islam. We need to pray for this country and pray for the Christian leaders in Pakistan. And so this is one of my friends I want to introduce you to. Okay, we'll go on, Jonathan. This is me praying for Shabazz Bati. Now, I had worked, and we in CSW had worked with Shabazz Bati for 13 years. He was a Christian human rights activist. He cared about his people. We brought him to the UK, we took him to America, we took him to Brussels to brief Western politicians on what was needed in Pakistan. And when Mrs. Bhutto came to power, she appointed Shabazz Bhatti, my friend, as the cabinet minister for minorities, the first Christian ever to hold public office in Pakistan. And immediately he set his heart on repealing the blasphemy laws and immediately he came to the top of the Taliban list. And because of time, I can't tell you the whole story. But I met him, I prayed for him at our conference in London in 2010. I went to the prayer breakfast in America in Washington in 2011 with my colleague Mervyn Thomas. Shabazz sent for us to his room. And when we entered his room, he said, Brothers, Stuart and Mervyn, he said, they're going to kill me. Please pray for me. He met Mrs. Clinton. He met the Canadian Prime Minister. He went back to Islamabad. And on the 2nd of March 2011, the Taliban shot my friend Shabazz dead. Who cares, friends? We need to pray for Christian leadership of integrity in Pakistan. We need to pray for the unity of the church. And we need to pray for the minorities there. Please pray for Pakistan at this time.
and then come further with me. Okay, let's go to Iran, and we're going to hear about Iran this week, a country that has a long link with both the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you read in Acts, when the Holy Spirit fell, there were Elamites, Elamites in the assembly. Uh, Elam is the Old Testament word for Iran. One of my best friends is Sam Yegnazar. He's been in this pulpit. He sends his very best wishes to you. He says that he loves you dearly here. And you'll be pleased to know that on the 22nd of September, at Church House in London, they are launching the new Farsi Bible. You can't go unless you're invited. So if you'd like to go, please see me afterwards and I'll send your email to Sam. Pastor Nadakani an evangelical pastor in Iran was detained for setting up a church and registering it and asking the authorities in Iran why it was that only mullahs, imams, Muslim clerics could teach children. They looked at this man. They found out that he was an apostate, a convert from Islam, and that he was evangelizing. They detained him and they sentenced him to death. Then there's no law on the statute books in Iran that apostates should be killed, but senior, very senior clerics have said that apostates should be murdered because they have blasphemed Muhammad by turning their back on him. When we heard that Nadikani and Release International and Open Doors ran his case too, uh, we began to pray for him. And then he was sentenced to death in October 2010. The first time ever, we ran a Facebook campaign out of CSW's office. Have a guess. Come on, this is... I'm not going to do all the speaking. Have a guess how many Christians around the world logged in to our website at CSW. Have a guess. Somebody shout. It was thousands. It wasn't hundreds of thousands but it was thousands. Have a guess. That's a great guess. It was 58,000 from all nations, from South Africa, from African countries, from America. Hill songs. Marlene, the, the, song, the singer, uh, logged onto the website and we, she said we'll get 150,000 to pray. Rick Warren himself logged onto the website and said we'll get 400,000 to pray. Amazing, isn't it? And so, all these people who logged on the website began to send emails, as we'd asked them, to the Iranian authorities. It jammed up their diplomatic links all over the world. When we ask you, and when Release and Open Doors ask you to do that, please do it. It makes a difference, friends. Your email, your letter will make a difference. Advocacy works. And so... The, the prison in Rasht, where the, the pastor was, couldn't cope. And they sent the case to the chief um, uh, of Iran, the Supreme uh, Mullah, and they decided to postpone uh, the, the death sentence. And they sent lawyers to meet his lawyers. They made him an offer. They said, if you're willing to state that Muhammad is the prophet of God, you can go free. 
What did the pastor say? He said, no way. John 14 verse 6 says this, that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. The way to God, the truth about God and the life of God. No man comes to the Father. But but there's no other way, friends. There is no other way. Jesus is the name. Amen. Jesus is our advocate and Jesus is our saviour. And Jesus is the door. He said, no way. And he stood firm. And then, amazingly, they brought him to court and set him free. And he sent us a message. Oh, and we'll go on, Jonathan. Just This is what happens when prayer, you make prayer. And we'll go on to the next picture, Jonathan. So we prayed and we campaigned. And so there he is, being released from Rast Prison in October 2012. And he sent a request to us saying that he'd like to thank the Christians in the UK for praying for him. And so he came to our conference in November 2012 at the Emmanuel Centre and he got onto the platform and he said, thank you. Thank you for praying for me. And then, friends, he went to Holy Trinity Brompton uh, and preached twice. He met Nicky Gumbel. He went to St Paul's Onslow Square. He went back to Iran and he was in prison again because they said... You haven't done enough days in prison. We need to continue to pray for him. And let's go on, Jonathan. This is Pastor Irani. Pastor Irani has been in prison now three years. He has been abused physically. He's temporarily lame. He's temporarily lost his sight. And he's still in prison. Would you please pray for the pastor? And on Monday morning, when I lead the prayers, we will pray for him and his wife. He's still in prison. And we'll go on, Jonathan. And here, you're going to hear about this man this week. This is Farshid. He's part of Elam Ministries Network. Farshid has been in prison now for three years. He's in the Evan prison when he sent a letter to Sami Agnazar a few months ago, uh, Sam is his mentor and spiritual father. He gave his greetings in the first paragraph. And then he said, I was in solitary confinement for 362 or three or four days. And they abused me, but I have forgiven them. Please pray for Farshid and the brothers and the sisters that are in prison in Iran. And let's stand with the Iranian Christians. Let's just go back a second, Jonathan. The Iranian Christians believe this. Jeremiah chapter 49 says this. There's a prophetic word that in the last days, God is going to restore the fortunes of Elam. Amen? They believe revival is coming. And if you ask an Iranian Christian, how many Christians are there in Iran? They'll tell you over a million. We don't know. We can't qualify. And we that work in human rights and religious freedom and do our advocacy. We can't say that for sure. But we know the church is growing and Jesus is building his church, amen, and the gates of hate will not prevail. Okay, so we'll go then finally to my last question. And so here's a question for you. Eric, you can't answer. Where is this church in the UK? Come on, have a guess. It's not in Ireland. Where is it? Come on. Alistair, where is it? Scotland. 
No, it's not in Scotland. It's in Wales. Yes. I took this picture. This, so the second question I have for you is this. Can a church, it's in Wales, it's in the village of Lanover, the chapel is called Hanover Chapel, and it was a dissenting Protestant chapel in the 1860s. Can a church change the destiny of a nation? Answer me. Yes. All things are possible with God. Only believe. So this church in Wales changed the destiny of a nation. Because in this church, where the Reverend Lloyd Thomas was the minister, he had two sons. And his youngest son was Robert Germain Thomas. And in that church, that young Welshman, who had a wonderful gift for languages, committed his life to the Lord Jesus. His father ordained him as the minister of the gospel. And in that church, God's Holy Spirit spoke to him. It's never too late to go to the mission field, friends. I repeat what Eric said. Two of my friends four years ago heard one of Eric's colleagues and went off. They sold up their house. Their goods had gone. They told me God was calling them to the mission field and they ended up in the city or town of Tumen on the Chinese-North Korean border. They're running a cafe. Their names are Robert and Liz Granger. I think Liz was 65 years old. They're still there, even though there's been persecution and problems. You're never too old to go. So this young Welshman went to Beijing with the London Mission Society. Whilst he was in Beijing, he met some Koreans and God touched his heart and on his second visit to Pyongyang he was on uh, the American boat the SS General Sherman as they sailed up the reaches to Pyongyang and they'd taken Koreans on board to help them guide them up the river the people on the shore thought they were hostages and they attacked the boat they set it on fire and the boat sank and all the men and the crew waded ashore with guns and knives, but this young Welshman waded ashore with his Chinese New Testaments because he knew they could read Chinese script. And as he was martyred, listen, as he was martyred on the beaches of Pyongyang, he thrust his New Testament into the hands of the executioner. And that's how the Gospel of Jesus Christ reached Korea. Not to the south where the big churches are, but to the north, to Pyongyang. And two years later, an American missionary was down. He was taken to a house and there were pages of these New Testament on the wall. That's amazing, isn't it? Some people said they were going to read the word of God. Others said it was the quality of the paper they were looking at. And the church was formed. And a Robert Germain Thomas church was formed in Pyongyang and on that site today there is a Christian university I'm sure Eric will tell you more about it during the week it is the worst country in the world for people to live in and we'll go on Jonathan I just want to show you share with you this is a picture from satellite of Yodok prison, prison camp 15 there are 45,000 good North Korean people in that prison 75% of them 
because of guilt by association. Not they've done anything wrong, but their families, their brothers, sisters, cousins, fathers, mothers, have done something or said something against the state. All the whole population is graded into those that are friendly and love the president or those that hate. And amongst them, friends, are Christians. Our family, brothers and sisters. And when Christians are found, they, their parents and their children, are put into these prisons. Well, we've been documenting this as part of our advocacy. We'll go on. Uh, Jonathan, this is the bridge at the Tumen, the Tumen River, the border. Um, this has been taken from the Chinese side, and across that bridge is North Korea. And it's over that bridge that North Koreans that are found in China, if they're found by the police, they're taken over there, taken and then they're questioned by the North Korean police. They ask them two or three questions. Are you a Christian? Have you been with Christians? Do you have a Bible? And if they answer yes to that, sometimes, because they've crossed the border, which is a crime against the state, they can be executed. And all the evidence we've had is that there are executions that are carried out weekly in the towns and cities and the market squares. Who cares? Let's go on, Jonathan. And so just to a man that Eric knows well on the right is Shin Don Hyuk. Let's say his name together, shall we? Shin Don Hyuk. Shin Don Hyuk on the right, and I call the man on the left, Mr. Kim. He was a prison officer in two prisons in North Korea. And we brought them here in 2007 when we launched our report, North Korea, a case to answer and a call to act. So when we do presentations and briefings, we always provide documentation that's accurate and true. This is a 113-page report on the treatment of North Koreans in prisons, including Christians. And Shin Don Hyuk came in 2007 to testify. He was born in prison camp 14. He was in that prison about 24, 25 years. When he was about 15, his mother and brother tried to escape from the prison and they were executed. And he and his father were tortured because of what they had done and he carries the scars on his body today, and then um, they were executed. And every North Korean we've interviewed, and we've interviewed over 100, I expect Eric's interviewed more, everyone has been made to watch public executions. Who cares? We do, and so what have we done? We'll go on, Jonathan. And so, we worked very hard at the United Nations doing our advocacy. Remember, God has called us to advocacy. And so we were part of a group of 37 agencies working in North Korea, all the agencies that you know, Release and Open Doors and Voice of the Martyrs. We worked together to persuade the United Nations Human Rights Commission to set up a commission of inquiry into North Korea looking at crimes against humanity. And you know, friends, as we prayed, much to our amazement, and we've been trying for 10 years for this, they set up the inquiry in 2013. And they appointed Judge Michael Taylor. You can see him in the middle of the picture. And when he came to London, I was asked to give him 
evidence for two days and so I gave him our report and I socked it to him with all the other North Koreans that have given evidence about the prisons and about the treatment of North Koreans in the prisons. The result was that he wrote his report, 400-page report that's overwhelming, that's damning against the regime, and the aim is to bring them to the International Criminal Court. And that report is with the United Nations. Um, it's gone to the Security Council. And we're praying that China won't veto the report or overturn the report. Please pray. And so I want to finish with my piece on Eritrea. How bad is it for the Christians in Eritrean prisons? Well, I'm going to show you a four-minute piece that we did on a pastor that we've campaigned for for eight years who's been in the prisons of Eritrea. His name is Pastor Tetsfatsian. He was the leader of the big church, evangelical church in Asmara. And this is his story. And then I just want to share with you what you can do. Thank you, Jonathan. We might need a while to say. Thank you so much. And now Pastor Tetsfatsian is free. He's in the West, but his organs are failing, so we need to pray for him. So the challenge tonight is how can you be an advocate? What can you do? We want you, first of all, to pray. And at the back, in the area at the back there, we want you to commit to pray by receiving our weekly prayer emails. We don't want your names and addresses, but we love your names and email addresses so we can send you that weekly prayer. And if you want more details, we'll have information all through the week. And we are running a campaign at the moment called Retune Against Hate Speech. Much of the persecution of Christians comes from hate speech and we're asking Christians throughout the UK to sign and be part of it and we're running a petition that's going to the Archbishop of Canterbury. We want to change and stop the hate speech that's going on in the world. So if you'd like to know more, please come and see us afterwards. Thank you so much for having me. Help us to be a voice for the voiceless. Amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.